passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. If life hasn't fallen apart for you yet, it's just a matter of time, and it will. Every single one of us faces incredible storms in life. Maybe it's an unexpected diagnosis of cancer. Maybe it's an unexpected job loss. It may even be the horror of losing a spouse that you love or a child that is dear to you. Every single one of us will face times of trials. We will find ourselves awash in the storms of life. And the question is, what difference does it make when you know Jesus in those times? How does Jesus transform the storms of life that we all will face? That's something we're going to look at this morning. Now, as a church, we are studying our way through the Gospel of Mark. This morning, we are in Mark chapter 4. We're going to be studying verses 35 through 41. So I'd like to ask everyone to take out your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 4, 35 through 41. We're going to read that together in a moment. But uh, before we do that, let me just give you a little brief intro of what we're going to learn in this passage. There's going to be two major things we'll learn in this passage. First, we'll see about the incredible authority and power of Jesus Christ. We've learned in earlier portions of Mark about Jesus having authority over demons and over authority over diseases. And here we're going to see that Jesus' authority is even greater than that. He has authority over creation itself. The other thing we're going to see is very practical for us, which is how Jesus changes the way we handle life's storms. So with that being said, let's go ahead and read Mark chapter 4, 35 through 41. I'd like to ask you to stand out of reverence as you follow along with your eyes and your copy of God's Word as I read. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That ends the reading of God's word, and you may be seated. I don't know if you noticed it, but this small passage actually breaks up into four neat sections. Uh, There's a little bit about the setting this takes place, and then it falls into three greats. There is a great storm, a great calm, and a 
great fear that comes over the disciples. So we're going to break our study apart under those headings. First, we'll look at the setting this takes place in, then the great storm, the great calm, and the great fear. So let's begin with the setting. And I'm not going to start with the verse itself. Let me just back out and give you the setting where this whole thing takes place. We know that this storm took place on the Sea of Galilee. Now, Jesus, he had his headquarters, so to speak, on the Sea of Galilee. Go ahead and put that up on the screen, if you could. Remember, we've been studying this. His headquarters was at Capernaum, where I put the star for you. And what he would do is he would uh, teach there, but he would often go on excursions to some of the surrounding villages around the Sea of Galilee and explain the gospel to them. Thanks a lot for the graphic. Now, what would happen from there is he'd go back to Capernaum. And Capernaum was a small village, only about 1,500 people. He stayed, we know, in Peter's house. Peter's house was a house that was larger than normal for that day, but it wasn't a huge house. And when the crowds would start to come into Peter's house and overwhelm the place, what he would do is he would go down by the shore of the Sea of Galilee and he would teach by the shore. And the crowds we've seen in previous weeks were simply tremendous, huge. It is not unusual for Jesus to have a crowd of 10,000 people around him that want to hear him teach. We've seen in previous weeks that people in these crowds have walked or gone by animal 150 miles one way to hear Jesus teach, but also to touch him. Because everyone who touched him was instantly healed by him. And so what these crowds have turned into, we've seen is essentially a mob scene. They are literally crushing Jesus, pressing into Jesus. So what Jesus has developed is a little strategy with his disciples. It's called the boat. He would uh, be teaching and the crowds would be mobbing him. So he would get into a small boat and go off into the shallows of the Sea of Galilee and teach from the boat, giving sort of an automatic front row for his audience because you can only tread water for so long before you have to go back to shore. Now, for the last two weeks, we saw uh, a number of the parables that Jesus taught. The parable of the sower, and the parable of the lamp, and the parable of the mustard seed. These were some of the parables Jesus taught when he was on the shore, on the Sea of Galilee, on this day. Now, you need to understand what it would have been like for Jesus to be teaching from the boat that day. First of all, there is uh, on what is the cove of the sower, which is most likely where this took place, and we showed you a photo of that in previous weeks. There are maybe 10,000 people on the hillsides. So for an entire day, he is projecting his voice as loud as it can be heard for people to hear on the hillside. It is a day of him being on the boat in the sun. Now, we are from Okaboji. So I have to tell you, does being on the boat in the sun tire you out at all? Yes, it it makes you exhausted. Not only that, but whenever he's around people, are people easy with him? No, they're pressing on him. They're crushing him. So the thing you have to understand is this is the end of a day of teaching 
where he's exhausted, in the heat and sun on a boat when he's exhausted, and people pressing and crushing in him when he's exhausted. That is the background of when this scene takes place. The other thing I'd like you to know that help us understand about this is the geography around the Sea of Galilee. That's point B here on your outlines. Now, the Sea of Galilee, uh, just for trivia buffs, so you know, is the lowest body of fresh water in the world. It is 682 feet below sea level. The Dead Sea is actually lower than the Sea of Galilee, but the Dead Sea is not a body of fresh water. It is a salt and mineral brackish place. Now, what you need to understand about the topography around the Sea of Galilee is it has mountains uh, around it. This gives it some unique weather qualities. To the north and northwest, there are mountain ranges that are 1,500 feet high. Go ahead and put that up. You can see, oh, back up, back up. We're not there yet. There you go. Hold on. Here's the Sea of Galilee, and you can see the hillsides there. Now, on the north and northeast, there are mountain ranges that are 3,000 feet high. So you have 1,500 feet high on one side, 3,000 feet on another side, and not too far away is Mount Hermon. Go ahead and give us the next slide. Mount Hermon is this in the background. It is 9,200 feet high, not too far away. So between Mount Hermon on one side and the Sea of Galilee, not too far away, you have a 10,000-foot elevation drop. Now, this is a small sea. We talked about it. It's not actually a sea. It's a body of water. It's only 13 miles high, if you want to call it on the map, and 8 miles wide. It is essentially a big bowl at the bottom of these mountain ranges where the water runs and it rains on the mountains and it all sort of flows into the Sea of Galilee. Now, for those who are looking for more accurate information, are there some springs that feed the Sea of Galilee? Yes. Does the Jordan River from the north, it, does it flow into the Sea of Galilee? Yes. But it is essentially a big bowl to catch all of the rainwater off of these mountain ranges. So the water in the Sea of Galilee is very fresh, very good. It's mountain water, which is why it is known for such incredible fishing. Even today, 50% of the water that is used in Israel comes from the Sea of Galilee because it is that good and that pure. But the other thing to realize is that the Mediterranean Ocean is only 30 miles away from this to the west. And here's what would often happen. Uh, wind and moisture from the Mediterranean Ocean comes and blows and goes up the mountain ranges. It cools. And what does cool air do? It descends. It goes over the other side of the mountain ranges. It starts descending down the mountain ranges because of the peaks and valleys and the texture of it. It gets concentrated. And then what you have is during the day, the heat heats the area of the Sea of Galilee. The, the air rises. It creates a low-pressure system on the, uh, the Sea of Galilee. And this cold air that's already coming down the mountains then gets sucked 
into the Sea of Galilee. And so the Sea of Galilee is legendary for spontaneous storms that are extremely strong. In fact, uh, historically, they have recorded waves over 10 feet high during the storms on the Sea of Galilee. This is a small place. Remember, 13 miles by 8 miles wide. It is not that big. These waves on the sea, in the village of, or the city of Tiberias, rather, on the west hand side, they've recorded these actually crashing and breaking 200 yards into the city of Tiberias. Now, these unique weather patterns and these strong storms that are a part of the topography and geography of the Sea of Galilee are essential for us to know as we head into this story to help us understand what it was like. Now let's go ahead and start with the text. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowds, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. It starts with saying, on that day. It is the same day he has been teaching all of these parables that we studied in previous weeks. When evening had come, it is the end of the day. The sun is setting at this point. Now, let's think of the uh, options that Jesus has. He's been teaching from a boat. What happens if he goes back to shore? Are the crowds just going to ignore him? They're going to continue to mob him. And so they start about, let's go to the other side of the lake. Let's go to the other side is what it says here. I want you to notice this because we'll also come back to be important information. Who took the initiative to go to the other side? Jesus. It was his idea. Now, maybe on a, just a human level, we could look at it and say Jesus is trying to get a break from the crowds. Jesus has had an exhausting day. Jesus just wants some rest. He knows if he goes to the other side of the lake with a boat, it's at least going to take the crowds a while to walk around it. And he'll get a little break in there. But as we'll see, there's much more than just a little human rest going on in the background to this story. It says, leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. Just as he was, they didn't go back to land. They took him immediately off of the boat he was teaching on and put him on the boat to sail across to the other side. Now, I started to wonder about this. Boats, other side. How big was this boat? I mean, who owned this boat? What was it like? Just trying to put myself in the situation to be able to understand it. Well, my guess would be that it was, it was a fishing boat, one of the fishing boats on the Sea of Galilee. Seven of the 12 disciples were fishermen. It says that they left their boats when Jesus called them. It doesn't say they sold their boats when Jesus called them. So apparently they took what would be a fishing boat maybe one of the disciples' fishing boats, to the other side. 
The word for boat is really in the Greek nondescript, and so we don't have a lot of detail on what size this boat was, maybe except for the fact it was a fishing boat. And we don't know too much about fishing boats in this day, um, but we do know some. And then there was an interesting discovery that happened in 1986. Maybe some of you know this. That on the Sea of Galilee, they saw something sticking out of the mud on the bottom. They actually dug it up, and it was the carcass part of the hull of a boat. And they carbon dated it and all that kind of stuff. And it dates back to the very time of Jesus. Go ahead and put that photo up there. This is what it looks like right now in a, in a museum. In fact, it's been dubbed and nicknamed the Jesus boat, since this apparently is a boat that was used for fishing in Jesus's day. And from that, we've been able to learn a few things. Like we know that this boat was apparently about 27 feet long. And I wondered, well, how big is this boat that Jesus is on? Here's what I measured off last night, 27 feet. So if this is where we start, 27 feet goes all the way over to here. So that's about the length, possibly, of this boat. Uh, these bo this boat, the Jesus boat, was about eight foot wide. And from what we know about other pieces of historical data, these kind of fishing boats, they actually had two oars per side. So you could row them if you wanted to, but they also had a mast and a sail on them, so you could sail them if you wanted to. A boat of this size was you know, big enough to put all 12 of the apostles on, but it wasn't a tremendously large boat. Now, Matthew and Luke, by the way, record this same, this same incident of the storm. And Luke tells us a little bit more detail. He says that when they left for the other side, they were sailing along. So they weren't rowing to get to the other side, even though the boat could do that. They had the sail up, fully open, and were taking what would have been the gentle breeze to get to the other side of the lake. We also know that what did Jesus do as they were sailing along? Jesus fell asleep, and he put his head on the pillow. The word for pillow is literally head cushion. <laughs> so he fell asleep. Incidentally, this is the only time in the Gospels that we are told that Jesus fell asleep. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't sleep, but this is important for us to know that he went asleep. This is an important aspect of the story. That gives us the setting. Jesus in a boat about that size with his 12 apostles sailing along across the Sea of Galilee with a gentle breeze in the evening as the sun is setting. And then the action begins to unfold the great storm. A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? 
it says a great windstorm arose. This term in the Greek for windstorm is also sometimes legitimately translated in the field of meaning of hurricane or cyclone. We are talking 70 plus mile per hour winds. Luke, in his recounting of this storm, says the storm descended on the lake. And once you know that geographical background of the idea of the cold air coming up and getting colder on the mountains and then racing down the mountainside, this is exactly what Luke is describing as the storm descends on the lake and, the lo- and heads into the low-pressure system. Now, Just as we mentioned, this storm churns up waves. Now, we've already seen how big these waves can be on the Sea of Galilee. They can be up to 10 feet high. So think of waves 10 feet high in a boat that was only 27 feet long and 8 feet wide with maybe 12 people in it. And then all of a sudden, the next line begins to make good sense, which is the boat was already filling. Or you could translate it this way, the boat was currently full. (laughs) In other words, it's filled with water. There is no point in bailing at this point. We are going under. The captain is going down with the boat. Now remember who these guys are. These guys are experienced fishermen. They have spent their life on this lake. They have been in storms before on this lake. But at this point, they are in a complete panic due to the size of the storm and the filling of the boats. Matthew, in his description of this storm, he describes the waves with these words in Greek, mega seismos. That doesn't mean much to you, but let me put it this way. Seismos is the Greek word where we get our English word seismic, like seismic activity, earthquake-level activity, earth-shaking-level activity, mega earth-shaking-level waves. Is well, Matthew describes the waves that have been churned up very quickly by the power of this wind. And remember, what time of the day is this? Evening. If it wasn't dark, it was just about to get dark. Put yourself in that boat at that moment and feel the panic. Ten-foot waves swirling around. You can't see anything. The boat is filled. Maybe it's sort of like putting yourself on a roller coaster where it goes up and down and left and right when you least expect it, but it's happening in the dark and without a seatbelt. That's what it's like for the apostles at this moment with Jesus on the boat. Now, where is Jesus in all this? He's in the back, asleep. He was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Stern, by the way, means back of the boat, and he has his head on the pillow, and Jesus is sleeping through all this, as if Jesus doesn't even seem to care 
that they are about ready to die. That's what it says. They awoke him. They said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Don't you even care we are going to die? Do you catch the accusatory tone in there? Like, Jesus, I thought you loved us. I thought you chose us. I thought you cared about us. But when our life is falling apart, all you can do is sit in the back and sleep? I mean, couldn't you even grab a bucket and start bailing? Now, how many of you have been in the exact same situation? Life is falling apart around you. It seems like you're about ready to die, and it feels like Jesus is ignoring you. It feels like Jesus is asleep and doesn't know what's going on in your world. And you're turning and saying to him, Jesus, don't you even care about what's happening to me? Anybody else been there? That's the situation we have here. So, we go from the great storm to the great calm. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. The word, he rebuked the wind, which means he told the wind to stop. As for the waves, he said, Peace, be still. He told the waves to be still, and it says the wind did cease, and there was a great calm. Now, what this is saying and how this unfolds is there were 70 plus mile per hour winds, and he rebuked them, and they stopped like that instantly. The waves, 10 feet tall, that were churning in every direction, that were crashing into the boat, went flat. It says there was a great calm. You could also translate this, it went dead calm instantly at the words of Jesus. Now, put yourself in the disciples' shoes at that moment. When Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves, and they change instantly. Now, they were obviously in awe, but as their mind began to just process this scene, I'm sure being Jews, they would go back to different parts of the Old Testament and try and filter this scene through what they knew. And they would have gone back to passages in the Psalms that said this, You rule the raging of the sea. When the waves rise, you still them. Only God himself can still the waves. Or Psalm 65, 6 and 7. The one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas and the roaring of their waves. Or even better in Psalm 107. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. 
Now, the way the flow of the book of Mark has been going is these small stories about Jesus, what they've been doing is they've been stretching not only the disciples' understanding of who Jesus is, they've been stretching our understanding of who Jesus is and how great He is and the power He has. You see, in previous stories, we saw that Jesus has authority over demons and He has authority over disease. But now we discover that He has authority over creation itself. Everything in creation responds with complete obedience to His mere word. Like an obedient dog responding to its master, creation responds to Jesus and whatever He says. Now this is just the beginning of sort of a growing understanding that is teased out later in the New Testament about Jesus' relationship to creation itself and His greatness over creation. Let me show you how some of these things about His relationship to creation is teased out in latter New Testament books, like Colossians chapter 1. For by Him, speaking about Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. Jesus created everything visible and invisible. And He is the one who is the glue who holds everything together in this world. It's pretty amazing. And then one of my favorites, especially with this particular passage, comes from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. This word upholds can be translated controls. He controls the entire universe by His words exactly what we just saw as he took charge over the storm and made it quiet with just speaking the word. And also John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3, in the beginning was the word, that's Jesus, and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that has been made. So the big lesson of this story in the progression of what Mark is doing in his gospel is this new authority of Jesus, that he is, doesn't just have authority over demons and diseases, he has authority over everything in creation, and all of creation responds with obedience to his spoken word. Well, we've seen a great storm. And a great calm at the word of Jesus. Now we move on to a great fear. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? He says, Why were you so afraid? 
don't you have any faith? In other words, do you think things are really out of control in that storm? Do you think I didn't know what was happening when that storm hit you? Do you think I was going to let you die? In the storm, they focused on the storm and the fear they had when they should have focused on Jesus and the faith in Him they have. You see, it's no different for you and for me. We are going to face storms in life as well, where everything seems to fall apart. And the first thing that usually comes to our mind is, Jesus, don't you care about me? Jesus, don't you know what's happening to me? Jesus, I thought you loved me. And we focus on our fear of the storm rather than focusing in faith on Jesus. Now, here's my question. When Jesus was asleep in the stern, had he forgotten about them? Is he oblivious to what was happening to them? Absolutely not. He was still in complete control. There are times in your life and in my life when we face trials and tribulations and storms and it feels like God has forgotten about us and Jesus is not responding to us. Has he forgotten about us in those times? Absolutely not. Jesus still knows everything that is happening to us in the storm, and He still cares about us and loves us in the storm. And it says this, they were filled with great fear. Now, the word fear, it's the Greek word phobos. It could be translated as frightening fear, though I don't think that's the way it should be translated in this context. When you look it up in the Greek dictionary, it could mean complete astonishment, or it could be complete amazement, which I actually think is the right way to translate it in this context. They were completely astonished. They were completely amazed for two reasons. One is obviously Jesus' amazing authority over creation itself, which they did not realize. But the other thing that they were amazed at is this that in the storms, in the storm, they didn't need to have fear. They simply needed to have faith in Him, that He would carry them through the storm. And He still loved them in the storm. He was aware of everything that was happening to them in the storm. And until God the Father decided to bring them home to heaven, He would protect them through the storms. And folks, this is truth that we need to hear as well. When the storms of life come our way, it's so easy for us to just focus in fear on the storm itself rather than focus our energy and faith in Jesus who loves us who cares for us, and who will provide for us in the storms of life. 
Now, let me just give you these three applications. They'll go rather quickly, except for the last one's a little bit longer. Number one, we've seen this. Jesus has authority over creation. He's in charge of not just demons and diseases, but he's in charge of creation itself, and it responds with obedience to his word. Number two, the apostles were just as safe during the storm when Jesus was asleep as they were after the storm when Jesus was awake. There are times and trials where we have storms in life and we feel just like the apostles in the boat. We feel like we are ready to die. We are about to perish and we're saying, Jesus, do you even care about us? In those storms, he says, don't focus on the storms. Focus in faith in me, knowing that I love you and I care about you. Then I want to give you one extra application point that'll help you if you're getting into your life group questions this week on the bottom of your sermon handout, and that is this. You know, God uses storms to mature us and to increase our love for Him. Whose idea was it to sail across the lake that night? Jesus. Whose idea was it to stay asleep when it looked like their world was falling apart? Jesus. Jesus is the one who sailed them into the storm, not because he hated them, but because he loved them. And he was trying to reveal more of himself to them and increase their faith in him through the storm. Do you think that Jesus may ever sail you or me into a storm? And if he sails us into a storm, is it because he hates us or because he loves us? If he sails us into a storm, it's because he's trying to reveal more of himself to us and increase our faith, love, and trust in him. Jesus used that storm to build the, dis the disciples' spiritual maturity. Because I guarantee you that was not the last storm in life they faced with Jesus. It was only the first storm in life they faced with Jesus. And from that point forward, they would look back and they would say, you remember that storm when life was falling apart around us? Jesus told us not to let ourselves be focused on the fear of the storm, but just focus our faith in him, knowing that even if it seems like he's asleep on the cushion, he still knows everything that's happening. He still loves us, and he will carry us through until God the Father decides it's time to call us home to heaven. Storms are the way that God creates great steps of spiritual maturity in our lives. Look what it says, Romans chapter 5, 3 through 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
or James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials or storms of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. My friends, God loves you too much to let you or me have a storm-free life. The people who are the most mature, the most Christ-like, and the most useful for God and His kingdom are not those who have never been in a storm, but those who have faced the storms of life and learned to not fix their faith on the storm, but on Jesus who carries them through. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we come before you. We thank you so much for this little story of the storm. Thank you for how it helped us understand how you are so great, even to command creation itself with just your word. Thank you for how we can look what you said to your apostles, and that in the storms of life, that we don't focus our eyes on on the trials and troubles in front of us, but we focus our eyes on you, Jesus, knowing that you are the one who will save us and carry us through. We thank you even for what we learned about this storm, that sometimes you sail those you love into trials and tribulations, not because you hate them, but because you love them. You want to reveal more of yourself to them, creating a story of rescue, of how you carried them through. So thank you, Lord, for the storms that you've allowed us to experience, and thank you for the good things you've done in our life that teach us to love you more through them. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.